Good morning, everybody. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Love you all. Okay. Hymn 476 is the new hymn for the rest of this month. We'll do one, two, and five. And if you don't know this tune, I'll sing loudly for you. 476, one, two, and five. Who are you who walk in sorrow down Emmaus's barren road? Hearts distraught and hope defeated, bent beneath grief's crushing load. Nameless mourners, we will join you, we who also mourn our dead. We have stood by graves unyielding, eaten death's bitter bread. Who is this who joins our journey, walking with us stride by stride? Unknown stranger, can you fathom depths of grief for one who died? Then the wandering we told you how our dreams to dust have turned. Then you opened wide the scriptures till our hearts within us burned. Alleluia, alleluia is the Easter hymn we sing. Take our life, our joy, our worship, as the gift of love we bring. You have formed us all one people, called from every land and race. Make the church your servant body, sent to share your healing grace. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, grant that we who have celebrated the Lord's resurrection may, by your grace, confess in our life and conversation that Jesus is Lord and God. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, it's my favorite of the post-Easter or the post-Feast of the Resurrection Sundays, which is Quasimodo Genity, and it is my favorite because I just love to say Quasimodo Genity. By the way, if you haven't ever read The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the reason why his name is Quasimodo is because he was delivered to the church on the first Sunday after Easter, so they named him 
Quasimodo because that was the day he was delivered. The more you know. Quasimodo genity. Okay. Uh, the verse of the week is Joel 2.32a, because we're going to be sneaky like that. Uh, let's speak this together. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, here's the big burning question. When shall it come to pass? You know, because... The Lord says through Joel that it will, but when? Immediately? Uh, no, not immediately. It is a promise of something that is to come. The resurrection. Uh, the death and resurrection. Yes, okay, good. What? what? Only God knows. No, we know. We do know. The death and resurrection, which we can say is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So day not meaning in this sense a period from sunup to sundown or sundown to sunup, or sundown to sundown, excuse me, uh, but a period of time, the day, as in this is the time when I manifest my power, when Jesus manifests his power, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it shall come to pass in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This also then hearkens to what Jesus says to the Jews because this was just a few weeks ago, still back during Lent, they are angry at Jesus because they think that he's making himself to be greater than the prophets, but worse, greater than Abraham. Abraham. And he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And I've told you before and before that the things that specifically the patriarchs of the Old Testament see are the fulfillment of the promise that was made to them. So Abraham sees the day of the Lord, which is he knows that the Christ is coming and he knows what the Christ is going to do and how salvation is going to be won. Jacob has the vision. He sees the ladder, which is not a ladder, but an actual uh, cross with the Lord on it and the angels ascending and descending. So salvation is witnessed. The day of Jesus is witnessed. When does this come to pass? It comes to pass in the day of Jesus, the death and resurrection. And in that day, and following that day, and by that day, and through that day, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, and I would ask this, who is the one who does call on the name of the Lord? What, is, what does that really mean? whoever calls. In a sense, yes. Uh, the person who, who is the person that calls on the name of the Lord? The person that has faith in the promises that God has made. You don't call upon the Lord if you don't believe that the Lord will hear and act. And if you do believe in the Lord, and if you do believe that he will hear you and then he will act, then you, of course, call upon him because you'd be a fool not to if you know your, he is, your, his ear is guaranteed to you and his hand to act is guaranteed to fight for you. 
So the people who really, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, which is to say those who have faith in the promises and then who act accordingly. You can't have faith in the promises and not call upon Jesus, not call upon the Lord, and you can't call upon the Lord if you don't have faith in the promises, because why would you? Okay, so whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is the name of the Lord? This isn't a trick, but it's sort of a mean question. Because when you hear name, what do you think of? What someone is called. My name is Eman. What is the name of the Lord? I am. Okay. There's the tetragrammaton, the four letters, the Hebrew letters that we would say is Yahweh. What is his name? But that's not the point. Because Jesus is the Lord's name. He is the Word of God made flesh. Who is the name of the Lord? Jesus. Notice the question, who is the name of the Lord, not what is the name? Because God doesn't, what do you call him? Uh, you can call him lots of things. He's given you all kinds of things to call him. But what does he look like? Who is the name of the Lord? Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord, which is to say, call on Christ. Call on the actual person of the name, which is Jesus, and you will be saved. Why? Because he guarantees salvation to all who are in him because he has died and has been raised again. Okay, let's speak this again. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? What is this? Excuse me, what does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word, the name of God among us, protect us from this, Heavenly Father. As with all of these first uh, set of petitions in the Lord's Prayer, the Catechism makes it clear that it's not because of your prayer or your doing that God is the way that he is. When God says, I am, and he says, my, you know, you can call me I am, that is, the, that is not simply what you can call me. He's speaking the reality of God. I am. Nothing else is apart from me, and anything that tries to exist apart from me isn't, because I am. And therefore, God's name is holy in itself because God is God is, I am. He doesn't need us to be holy. He just is, and he is also holy. He is kind of self-contained. Uh, so the prayer is not that God would stay holy by himself, because he will. The prayer is that, he would, that, that his name would be kept holy among us. 
that we would keep his name holy, that his name here among us would be preserved and holy. And the way that this is done is through preaching and teaching the proclamation of the word. You can also push it so far as to say the delivering of the word, which is not the same as the preaching and teaching of the word, because the delivering of the word looks, it can look something like this, because the word is made flesh and given to you to eat and to drink. So when you come for the Eucharist, you are also actually receiving the word of God. Which is funny because so many Lutherans will say, thank you for feeding us with what? The word. Mm -hmm. And what do they mean by that so often? And if you're somebody who says this, I'm not, this is not at all a slam. This is just recognizing that there's more to that than how it is mostly, most typically meant. Thank you for feeding us with the word. And typically that means thanks for a good sermon. But you are also fed with the word by taking the word into yourself as the word is given and shed for you. So all of this falls into this petition of preserving the, 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 the holiness of the name of God. Remember I told you that the name of God, just right there in Joel, the name of God is also the person of Jesus, not simply what he is called. And then this too, when the word of God is preserved as, and hallowed among us, it isn't just for us to hear or to observe. It's not given for thinking. It's given for doing because you are to lead holy lives according to it. So the person who comes and sits and listens and then walks out and thinks to himself, I've done my duty because I put my rear down in a seat on Sunday morning and I listened to what the pastor had to say for that day, then I'm good to do what I want through the week. But that's not it at all. That's an intellectual way of thinking. I'm coming, and I've this is like the fourth week in a row or something that I've told you this. The sermon is not a lecture. So it's not an intellectual <laughs> event where you go and you sit and oh, yes, no, no, take notes, blah, 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 whatever. Now you can take notes if you want. If there's something that you won't really want to remember, fine. Because if you ask me even the next day, I won't even remember what I preached to you. That's just the way things are. <laughs> so you are to lead holy lives according to it. It's supposed to do something greater than just listen to it and think about it. And whoever does not is actually profaning the name of God, which makes that a second commandment issue, which ties together the second commandment and the third commandment, because of course the third commandment is that you would not despise preaching and the word, or in the Latin version of the small catechism, the divinely inspired sermons, that you would not despise them but receive them. But then if you are not, if you are despising them and you are, you are rejecting the word as it's delivered to you, through many means and in many ways, then you are not only dishonoring the Sabbath, but you are also profaning the name of the Lord. 
which is something we don't often think about. Okay, that's been a long time. Quick questions about any of that? Yes, sir? Yes, well, I'll, I'll, yes, of course. <laughs> yes, of course we still sin, which is why we keep coming back. Because there's medicine here, not to give away the sermon. This always happens. Not to give away the sermon, you know, but there's medicine here. This is, this is a hospital. You come here to get better. And not wanting to come here because you're sick is you hacking up a lung, coughing up blood, and saying, I couldn't possibly go to the hospital because it's full of sick people. Yeah, Sherlock, no duh. That's the whole reason why. That's why you go there, because you are a sick person and you go there to be made better so you don't have to stay there. Now, of course, this is slightly different because you kind of want to stay here. You know, this is the church is the kind of place where we, like Peter, would say, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build some tents. You can stay here. We can stay here. We'll just have a big sleepover for the rest of our lives because it's so great for us to be here. And he says, no, 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 you've got things to do. Go out and do them, but keep coming back. Yeah, so of course we're sinners, uh, which is why we pray to the Lord, especially in this petition, help us to do this thing that we are not normally inclined to do and are not able to do apart from your aid and protect us from anything that we might do of our own or that might be done to us that would cause us not to hallow your name. Okay, to Sunday school. And uh, Sunday school teachers, we have some visitors that may be coming to Sunday school, so I will let you determine uh, where they need to be. Okay, any other questions about the verse or the catechism? All right, we're going to depart from our kind of regularly scheduled class because I want to do some, not that that's not fun, but I want to do something maybe more fun. <laughs> so uh, I got a phone call, this, and this is something I've wanted to do, but I got a phone call this past week from somebody, one of our members who was not here but who was someplace else on Easter visiting children and went to another church and was mildly disturbed by the Easter service. I'm not going to say who it is or where, what church they went to. How many guitars were there? The, I can't answer. I don't know. I didn't hear, any, I didn't hear anything about that. What I, what, I, what I was told was this, that the pastor decided that the youth group would be in charge of the Easter Sunday service. So they did everything. There was no sermon. There was no pastoral involvement. It was the kids that got up and did stuff. And uh, <laughs> the person who called me was bit irritated by that and and even said this fella missed a prime opportunity if you're not going to get up into the pulpit and preach on the biggest day of the entire church year what do you do with the rest of the year <laughs> which is true I mean when are the only times that you get to get to fire with both barrels just the glory of the resurrection 
The resurrection of our Lord, duh, and a funeral. But a funeral doesn't have your whole congregation gathered. Uh, some of them are always there, but it's not you know, the full community of believers gathered here, but the resurrection is. So why would you not do that? There are a lot of, this is another one of those occurrences where sometimes pastors are, they try to be too cutesy and they really shouldn't. Uh, they should just leave things alone and let them be and get, get themselves out of the equation because they they're not supposed to be in the middle of that. They're supposed to be simply facilitating the thing that is already there. So that's why the liturgy is a great thing, by the way, because it protects you from me. Because I can't, pardon the language, I can't make an ass of myself as long as the liturgy is here. Because it safeguards, it, it is a box that says, here's where you will be, don't take a step this way or that way or that way or that way. Stay here and everything will be great. And then I'm kind of stuck. But I think that would be a really good idea. And the liturgy says, no, that's a not a good idea. It's already been tried, it's dumb. If it was a good idea, we would have given it to you. But we didn't give it to you, so leave it alone. Don't touch it, you'll break everything. Leave it alone and let it be. That's why the funeral liturgy too it's one of the greatest tools of the church. It's the greatest things to pr protect you from me because everybody here, I assume, because we have visitors, so I don't know for sure. I will assume, though, that everybody here has been to at least one funeral that they walked away from and said, oh, whoa. Sometimes there are just no words for what kind of things you experience at a funeral, but of particular interest for me as a pastor and for my wife as a pastor's wife is how the pastor conducts the service and what he says. Maybe there are some bad hymns. Maybe whoever plays the guitar did a bad job. May, you know, whatever. But what it, really come, what it really comes down to is what was said and what was done. And there have been some real stinkers, let me tell you that. And what the funeral liturgy does is, if I ever get into the pulpit and preach you a real stinker of a funeral sermon, or if I goof around and make a mockery out of everything, you are at least getting what I did not give you myself from the liturgy. Because the liturgy says all of the things that I should be saying, and if I don't say them, you're still hearing it from the liturgy, even if you're not hearing it from me. So all of this stuff is there to protect you. And uh, so he said, they also, there was no sermon, there was nothing. The, the whole service was basically a play, a skit about the resurrection where they, they turned it into a show and they did the whole resurrection. And so he had a bunch of questions about, did this really happen this way? Did this really happen this way? And I thought that was the perfect opportunity here. What we're gonna do is, and it'll probably be bleed into next week too, is a harmony of the resurrection. And what a harmony is, um, there are a few very famous harmonies of the gospels. 
St. Augustine is perhaps the most famous one who wrote a harmony of the Gospels, which is taking all four of the Gospels, all four accounts by the, each of the evangelists, and putting them together into one account that incorporates all of the details from all of them into one big, great, big, long deal because they're all recording different things and recording in a different way. So the reason we're going to look at this is because another assumption of mine, you have never actually read a harmony of the resurrection. You know the resurrection primarily, I would guess, from the Gospel of John. And I would guess that for two reasons. One, because that is the most popular of the resurrection readings, which, by the way, if you don't know the difference between them, the reading from John is the one that we have at the sunrise service, which is the one where Mary Magdalene comes and Peter and John come and then they go and Mary Magdalene is there and she cries and then she thinks Jesus is the gardener. That's John's account. That's the one everybody knows. Um, the second reason is because almost everybody goes to the sunrise service where that's the gospel and they don't come to the chief service where the gospel is actually from Mark instead, which to be fair, is my favorite of the resurrection accounts because Mark's original gospel ends right where it ends for Easter Sunday, which is, and they were afraid and they told no one. The end. <laughs> and I love it because it's beautiful that they, they go to the tomb, they, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, they see the stone being rolled away, the angel is there, the guards, pass out, and then the angel says, oh, Jesus is risen. He's not in here. Did you think he was going to be in here? No, don't worry. He's, he's already risen from the dead. And then they're so afraid, they go away and they don't tell anybody. It's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> it's such a fun thing to preach on because that's the one that people don't know as well, that, oh, yeah, they are all afraid. Why would they be afraid? Isn't this happy? We're happy. Shouldn't they be happy too? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on that would make them not real happy. Why are the disciples hiding away in the upper room? Well, they're not exactly happy. Why are the disciples mourning on the road to Emmaus? Jesus asks them that. It's a beautiful account when they're walking and he says, hey, what are you guys all upset about? And they say, what, are, are you literally, are you the only alien? Are you an alien? here? You don't, you don't know anything about the last three days. You, you don't know anything about this Jesus guy that he killed? And he says, oh, who is he? What, what did he do? <laughs> Jesus is great. He's got a beautiful sense of humor, especially after his resurrection when he says, oh, everything's done. Now I can just have fun. Okay. Um, so there, there are a lot of little details in the harmony that you don't catch if you're just going from gospel to gospel. It's sort of the same phenomenon as reading your Bible with chapter, chapter numbers and headings and verse numbers. It's broken up by an editor and then you read it and it gives you natural stopping places or it gives you natural pauses where you think that the action stops. When in a lot of cases, it doesn't. So one of the best ways to read the Bible is to find a Bible that has no chapter headings, no chapter numbers, 
no verse numbers, that looks like a novel, open it up and just start reading it, and you will find so many things in the Bible you never thought about and never noticed before. Yes, sir. Maybe I misunderstood you there at the very beginning. You were referring to the, uh, the passion story as a combination of all That's all a, four. a harmony. Okay, harmonizing a narrative that harmonizes all four. Yes. So that's, we're going to look at a harmony of the resurrection. You, do you remember either, I, I think it was Pastor Selmeyer going back ways, read a harmonized of the Gospels and took a portion of it in each of the Lenten services and mm. would read would read a paragraph. Nancy, did anybody remember this besides me, or am I dreaming this? I can't remember. He would, he would, he would read a portion in each of the six, the six Lenten services. Sure. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's it's been out here. This is this is not original to you, right? A harmony, no. Yeah. Well, like I said, the, the most famous of the harmonies of the Gospels, which is not just the Passion, but the entire Gospels, was done by St. Augustine. So that's 4th, 4th, 5th century. Enough, fuzzy enough, I can't remember the whole, the whole story. That's mm -hmm. just that I remember that was the context of the, uh, the Lenten services. Yeah, this altar book, I don't know about the TLH. Again, I didn't grow up with the TLH. So I don't know what's in that altar book. This altar book has a harmony of the passion in it that you have the option of reading. Um, so there's, there's nothing really new. The, this resurrection harmony, I believe, it was, it was redone by another pastor that I know, but I think the original basis, the original document that was used for this particular harmony of the resurrection was done by Johannes Bugenhagen, who, if you know about your Lutheran history, Bugenhagen was... Um, one of the Reformation players. Yeah, so, contemporary yeah, contemporary of Luther. Yes, ma'am. I guess I don't understand what the big deal was. If those kids put on a skit, it still gave the message. So, is they're just upset because the pastor didn't give a sermon? <laughs> no. I think it's good to involve the youth. Sure. The, the, that's not, the, that's not the, the, the point I was trying to make. But, uh, it would be coming to church and not getting church. You can have a, a production any time, but if you're going to come to church and actually have church, then have church. That's, that's the point. So come to church and have church, or, or come and have a special event where people are doing something. Both of those are fine things, but especially on the biggest feast day of the entire church year, bigger than Christmas, bigger than anything else, to come to church and then to not have church on that day, which is the biggest of all of the days. That was the individual's source of frustration. And there were some very particular liberties that were taken with how all of that was presented. So you said they still presented the message. And my question is, but what message are they presenting? Because the message that was presented at this particular place was not actually the gospel message. It was a message, but not one worth any Christian listening to. That's part of the problem. 
No. Uh, okay, so just another kind of note. If you are somebody who enjoys harmonies of the Gospels or wants to compare the Gospels side by side, this is a great book for you to go out and get. It's called a synopsis. Now this one has the Greek in it. You don't have to get one with the Greek. You can get one that's just the English. And it puts all four of the Gospels right next to each other so you can see who records what, where it's recorded, and does this evangelist record it. I will warn you, if you're reading a synopsis, what you will find is you end up reading large portions of John <laughs> without any other of the synoptic gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of go together. John runs away and does his own thing, okay? So here's the first thing that happens is that early in the morning, the women come to the tomb. Now, there are a few important things to note here. This is after the Sabbath, that's Saturday night before the sunset. Mary Magdalene goes. She's the one everybody remembers. Then there is Mary, the mother of James. Mary, the mother of James, is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she is married to Clopas, who is the disciple on the road to Emmaus, Jesus' uncle, and his son, Simon, who does not recognize Jesus. There are a lot of family ties here, and it's about to get more so. Salome, that's the, another of the women, Salome. She is the wife of Zebedee, who is the mother of James and John, who are the cousins of Jesus, that is Jesus' other aunt. And then there is another woman who you probably don't remember, and her name is Joanna. Joanna is only ever recorded in Luke's gospel. She is married to a steward, a man who is a steward for King Herod. So she's got a lot of inside information. So Luke gets a lot of information from Joanna. She is a disciple of Jesus. All of these women are disciples of Jesus, which is a very important thing to note because there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. Jesus had a band of people that followed him wherever he went that were called his disciples. What we often call the disciples are the 12 who are also apostles. All apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. There were 40 disciples, at least 40, that followed Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome the mother of James and John, Joanna, are all disciples, along with other women, <coughs> bought and prepared spices for the body of Jesus. Now, this is why on the Maundy Thursday service, we always have women strip the altar. It's not the pastor and it's not the elders because it is the women who go to Jesus and who take care of him. So when we are in the triduum, the three-day service of Holy Week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it is the women who go 
and who take care of Jesus. This is, in a liturgical sense, a way of keeping the story alive, telling the story. Who is the one that goes to take care of Jesus? It is the women. So when it's time to take care of Jesus, who goes to do it? The women take care of Jesus. Uh, that, is a, that is a privilege that only the women get to enjoy. Um, they go while it is still dark. The sun is rising. Uh, it's dawn. They're going to the tomb. That's there. Then Matthew's account says that there is an earthquake. As they are approaching, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and, uh, and came and rolled away the stone and then sat upon it. And now, if you're only reading Matthew, it's really, really easy to think that this, the women are coming, they're here, the stone is rolled, that's over here. But Mark's gospel, when you harmonize it, says the women see the stone being rolled away. They don't come and see that the stone had been rolled away. They approach the tomb and they see that it is being rolled away. Uh, I talked a little bit about this in my sermon for the chief service when I when I, when I preached here on Mark uh, 16, but the reality is that the English translation says this, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back for it was very large, but that isn't what the Greek says. Uh, the Greek says something in the, it's a tense called the perfect passive, which is something we don't have in English. Uh, it means that in an event, takes place or is begun in the past, but doesn't end there, continues on or has continuing consequences. And there's really not a great way in English to translate that. So typically, if you're reading the Bible, it's either translated in the past, this did happen, or it's translated in the future, this is happening. And in this case, or excuse me, in the present, this is happening. But in this case, um, translators have chosen to translate it in the past, which is really kind of poor, because they put their heads down, they look and they see the tomb and they go, oh, what are we going to do? And they talk among themselves and then they turn and they look. And as they look up, there is an earthquake. And I would say maybe the earthquake is even the thing that causes them to look up again. And uh, the guards are still there and they see the guards faint and then they see the stone rolling. And here's the funny thing. Uh, it says there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended and rolled back the stone. So then the question is, but is the earthquake because the angel descended from the heavens, not from heaven, from the heavens, or is the earthquake the moving of the great stone? Does the earth rumble and shake because the great stone is being moved away? I think that it's perhaps the latter, that they hear the great rumbling and they look up and there is a shaking of the ground because this massive stone is just shoved away. And the guards pass out. They witness all of this and they see the angel doing it. This is why I love Mark's record because then you kind of think, wow, well, 
No wonder they were afraid. They saw all of this. I mean, who, who can roll a stone away that easily? If you, if you ever go to Israel, know this one thing. The garden tomb is not real. That is not the place where Jesus was laid. Don't get, not to be offensive here, but don't get lured in by the Protestants. That's not the real place. They said that that was a real place in the 1800s because there was a rock that looked like a skull. And the rock has already fallen apart since then. If it's that fragile, it wouldn't have lasted till the 1800s. The real place where Jesus is buried is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is how you can always tell which places are real and which places are not. Because the church builds a church where the real places are. If there's a place that doesn't have a church, it's not the real one. But here's the worth of the garden tomb. It is a fully preserved ancient burial tomb. So if you want to see what a tomb looks like, that's the place to go. If you want to see how big the stone is and the little channel that it rolls in to seal it up, go and look and you will see how big that stone is. So they see that this is actually happening. And here is the other thing. That makes this all the more amazing, by the way. Who's in the tomb? Or rather, who is not in the tomb? Jesus is not in the tomb. But when is the first time the stone is rolled away? Right in front of the eyes of the women. This is something we don't think about. Because what you think about is they come to the tomb and it's already open because Jesus opened it and walked out. <clears throat> Jesus didn't open it. The angel opened it. It's like a magic trick. If you ever go to see a magic trick and you watch them the whole time and then the end of the trick comes and you still say, I watched you the entire time and I still got fooled. Um, Penn and Teller, you probably have heard of them if you know anything about magic. They have a show in Las Vegas, but they're pretty famous. They're, they're a famous duo. Penn's sort of a big guy. He paints his pinky nail. And uh, Teller is a little guy, and he doesn't talk. And they do the, the cup and the ball trick, which is quite literally one of the oldest tricks in the book because it was a gambling game, the shell game. You have three cups, and you put the shell under one, and then you going around and say, which one is it in? And you say, well, I watched it. I know which one it's in. And you point to it and you lift it up and it's not there. And then, you know, magicians do all kinds of fancy stuff where they show you. Well, Penn and Teller do a trick where they use clear plastic cups so you can see everything that's happening. And you want to know the funny thing about that trick. It's clear plastic cups and you still can't tell how they do it. You, you can't tell. They're doing it and all of a sudden there's stuff appearing underneath the cup and then it's gone and you can't, you can't follow it even when they show you how they do it. And that's what Jesus is like. Hey, here, look. Come watch, watch the angel roll the, the stone away. Okay, there it is. Now look inside. Where's Jesus? Hey, you thought he was going to be there. He's not. And the thing about that is, then what does Jesus do when he rises? He walks out of the tomb and he doesn't roll the stone away. He just phases through the stone, 
which is beautiful. So that the first time anybody actually looks into the tomb, he's already not there. They didn't see him walk out. Nobody rolled the stone. It was the, excuse me, nobody rolled the stone away from the tomb. It was sealed. The seal is still there. All of a sudden, the seal is broken for the first time, and he's not there because he phases through. Just like in the upper room, the doors were locked, and Jesus just kind of, and then they're afraid because they think he's a what? They think he's a ghost, which is funny because this is not the first time that they have thought Jesus was a ghost. <laughs> they think Jesus is a ghost on the water, a phantasma. Okay, yes, Bill. So if that stone couldn't be rolled away, let's back up and say, who rolled it down to start with? It's not that it couldn't be rolled. It's that a number of people and a great exerted effort is required to move it. And so the women say, who's going to roll the stone? Because we know we're not going to be able to do it because it took however many people to do it when they put him in there. But the, uh, that the stone rolls on is, descends to the cover, does it not? Yeah. See how that's easier to cover it's slightly it. easier to roll it in front yeah. than it would be to open it. So it's not, they're not, yeah. So you can roll it down and the they are not designed to be opened, yeah. uh, as you see with Lazarus. The th the, once it's closed, it's not designed to be opened up again. Excuse me. But the, the stones are also very large and very difficult to move. So it, it, isn't, it isn't that it couldn't have been moved before. It, it was, obviously. Yeah. But it's the ease and speed at which... <laughs> One person just, whoosh, because it is an angel of the Lord. Yeah. And then the women see that the tomb is empty. They look inside, and they notice that there are angels, plural. And that's an important thing, because some of the Gospels say that there are men, you know, men clothed in white, which are angels. And, and then the other times you see an angel. A man spoke to them. So the way that this all harmonizes is there are more than one angels there, but one of them does the talking. So they go in and they see the tomb is empty. They know that Jesus has somehow been taken out of the tomb. That's perhaps one reason why Mary Magdalene is wondering about where they have put Jesus, because the beauty of this is the Jews think that the disciples are making the story up to garner belief in Jesus. And all of the disciples of Jesus think the Pharisees are gaslighting them because the seal was right there. So they must have taken the seal off, taken the body out, put it back, and then put a new seal on. And I can't believe that they would go through that kind of effort just to take him. Just give him back. He's already dead. So there's this frustration on both sides. So they look into the tomb, they see that it's empty, they see the angels, they can't find Jesus' body, and they see in Mark and Luke's gospel, they're described as men, but they're dressed in white, which should make you think of something like the transfiguration, where Jesus' clothes glow, white as snow, is how Luke records it. And then one angel speaks, and it is the one who moves the stone. 
um, then Mark is the only one that says they did not tell anybody. But then, in Luke 24, on the Emmaus Road, which takes place just that same day, by the way, the disciples say, well, certain women from our number told us that they had seen the empty tomb. And John's gospel obviously records that they told people because why would Peter and John be following Mary Magdalene back to the tomb if they hadn't told people? So then the question is, Mark's gospel says they told no one for they were afraid, and the other gospels say, well, they did tell people. So what is that, and how do we rectify it? Uh, it's, I think, pretty easy because when they go away from that place, they don't immediately go to tell anybody. They just get together and do the very same thing that all of the disciples do after Peter and John come back and say, oh, the tomb's empty. They all huddle in the upper room and go, what are we, we going to do? And the women kind of do that too. He's not in the tomb, but they rose down and there were angels. I don't know what to do. And if we tell anybody, they're going to think we're crazy. But they eventually tell, at the very least, Peter and John. Because Peter and John are the ones that then come back. Uh, now, this is something that only Matthew records. And let me find it here in the Bible so I can read it to you. This is the problem with a synopsis. Everything is way far away. Okay. Um, okay, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus then goes out. And the guards who were there at the tomb go out too. And they find people and they tell the story about what happened to them. We were standing there, and there was a rumbling, and we turned and looked, and there were angels from heaven, and one of them was pushing the stone away. And we were so afraid that we passed out. Now, the Greek calls their passing out a seismos, which is the same word for earthquake. That they had many earthquakes inside of them is how Matthew puts it. They trembled from fear so much so that they were like little tiny man-shaped earthquakes that trembled and then passed out from sheer fear. And I think that it's worth asking this at this point, and that is, why is everybody so afraid to see angels? Because the guards pass out, they faint from seeing the angels, Every time the angels appear to those uh, who, who come to gather to the tomb, the first thing that they say is, peace be to you, which is another way of saying, don't be scared. And before this resurrection narrative, every time an angel appears, the first thing out of their mouth is still, peace be to you, do not be afraid. Why? Why is the first thing that they say always, 
Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Okay, they have such an awesome presence. In a way, true. What, what do you mean by awesome? How can you describe that in a... They are not like humans. They are essentially extraterrestrials. Okay. Um, sure, scary, stunning. They, what, why do they shine? Yes, because they reflect the glory of God. Think about that. And then think about in the book of Exodus when Moses goes up to the mountain and he talks with God and he comes back down. What do the people do? Are they happy to see him? They're afraid of him because his face shines with the glory of God and they are afraid of it. This, by the way, sort of makes me laugh. There are a lot of these contemporary Christian worship songs where they say things like, shine your face on us, Lord, let us see your face. And I laugh about that because when you read the Bible, anytime the glory of the Lord shines or the people uh, have any kind of an encounter with a reflection of the face of God, it's never a thing where they go, oh, isn't that great? <laughs> it's always something where they are dead with fear. They, they are afraid of the glory of the Lord. They are afraid to see the face of God. God tells Moses, you can't see my face. This is the beauty of prayer. God gives you that for which you ask or something better. Moses says, hey, can I see your face? And the Lord says, no, you can't see my face, but you can see my back. <laughs> That'll be better for you, trust me. You don't really want to see my face because if you do, that's what's going to happen. When, when you describe that, I think of Gabriel speaking in... God, who are you? I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Yes. And then he carries that presence down. Yeah, so the messenger always bears the authority of the one who has sent him. And in the case of the angels, the messengers of heaven, they also reflect the glory of the one who has sent them. So there is a very real fright, not only because they are, it is an awesome appearance, a, a grand and holy appearance, something that is, otherworldly, but there is also the reality that the otherworldly aspect of an angel is the glory of God, and you are a sinner. And when sin enters the glory of God, it is consumed. And therefore, you are afraid when an angel steps into your presence because you are afraid of what is going to happen to you because you kind of know deep down what it is you're looking at and what you are yourself. So they're always afraid. Now, these guards go out. This is, again, only in Matthew's gospel. The guards go out, and they tell people what they saw. And the Pharisees tell them, you didn't see anything. And then they give them money, and they say, here, take this money. And if anybody asks you, don't tell them what you really saw. Tell them you saw his disciples sneak in and they roughed you up a little bit and then they stole the body away. That's what you're going to tell everybody. That's only in Matthew. Which is interesting because Matthew was one of the tax collectors. Matthew is also the one that records the faith of the centurion. Um, there is church tradition that says the centurion became a Christian and was active in the early church. And, funnily enough, 
that the wife of Pontius Pilate too became a Christian and was active in the early church. Pilate was not, that's what the tradition says at any rate, Pilate was not, but his wife was. So finally, the women decide, okay, we really should tell at least the 12, because they're going to want to know. They don't rush out, they don't spread the news, they don't tell anybody, essentially, except for the 12. Tell the disciples and Peter, says the angel. That's in John's Gospel. Why the disciples and Peter? Isn't Peter a disciple? He denied Christ, yes. So go tell the disciples and Peter, because he denied him, but he's still a disciple. Go and tell Peter. And in fact, Peter is the most important of the disciples. And he is reinstated when Jesus appears again. He asks him as many times as Peter denied him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, of course, you know that I do. I don't know that you do. I wouldn't be asking this. I mean, he does. But that's the point of the question, okay? So they come and they tell the disciples, and the disciples say, well, I don't know what to do. And they say, Peter and John, uh, you guys go check it out. So Peter and John go back to the tomb with Mary Magdalene. This is where John's account of the resurrection kind of begins. Mark's happens earlier in the morning when they go to the tomb the first time with all the women to anoint the bodies. John's gospel says, all right, yeah, they saw that that was what it was, and they came back and they told the disciples, and now here the disciples are coming, Peter and John coming to look into the tomb to see for themselves. Uh, John runs faster than Peter because he's younger than Peter, but Peter goes into the tomb first. Anytime it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John, which is funny because John is the only one who records the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in his gospel, writing about himself. Mm -hmm. It's 10.15, okay. Let me get to... Um, so two of the women go with them. It's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. They go back to the tomb. It is possible that the other women come back with them too, but they are not named if they did. And at least Peter and John go, but Luke also records that some, Peter and John and some of the disciples, which means that Peter and John are the chief ones, but one or two others decides, hey, we want to go see that too, and they go. Uh, okay, we'll continue this harmony next time. Okay, uh, very good. We'll see you at the altar. Thanks, Bill. I'm gone.